Okay. So we're focusing a little today on Luke 14. And this past week, I've had a number of books and conversations at play in my head. One of the books that I've slowly been working, to, working through, um, thanks to Mary putting it in my box, is called A Bigger Table by John Pavlovitz. He speaks of his difficulty in finding a place of belonging in a church that doesn't readily accept who he is. When he came out as a gay man in the church, really wasn't his place for quite some time. And he challenges the church to build a bigger table, which is where the name of the book comes from, if you were wondering. He challenges us to build a bigger table, a table fashioned by Jesus, a table of radical hospitality and true diversity. Diversity. And he readily acknowledges just how difficult and countercultural that process is and will continue to be. As he points out, whenever marginalized groups find welcome, those with the power and position will always feel they are losing something and they will cling tightly to a privilege that feels like it's evaporating. A challenge. Another book that I just got into this week that a number of my colleagues have been reading is called Dear Church by Lenny Duncan. He's one of the few black pastors in the ELCA, and his book truly is a love letter to the widest Christian denomination in America, the ELCA. And it truly is a love letter. He loves this church. He loves the grace that is proclaimed here. He loves Lutheran theology. He loves what we say we believe. And he challenges us to acknowledge. And to, he challenges us to live what we believe. To acknowledge the sneaky and insidious ways in which we continue to ignore and underestimate the value of the African-American culture. Not to mention cultures of other non-white backgrounds. And again, he too readily acknowledges the pushback and anger that his words may inflict. His words of truth delivered in love. But he knows he needs to speak them. He knows we need to hear them. Now, both authors speak of challenge, but both authors also speak of hope. Of the possibility of resurrection in the midst of the death that we all must face. A death of privilege, assumptions, tribalism, and more. They speak of what new life could look like for individual congregations like ours, for the church as a whole, for the whole kingdom of God. So if your small groups are looking for a book to tackle, I recommend either one of these or both. Because these conversations and ponderings have now converged this week in the context of today's readings, which was really apropos. On the one hand, we've got Hebrews. And the author leaves very little room for anything other than full-on grace and radical hospitality. When he says, let mutual love continue, he's not referring to mutual tolerance where we just put up with each other. He's not saying mutual, leave me the hell alone as if you go your way, I go mine. He says mutual love. And he means it. Because he goes on then to talk about hospitality to strangers. Putting yourself in the place of those who are imprisoned and tortured. Faithfulness and relationships, being content with what you have and not seeking more. 
When we encounter someone we don't understand or agree with, always err on the side of grace. Make yourself one of the outsiders so that you abide with Christ where he is and not where you want him to be. I think that what all of this boils down to is how you think about yourself and how you think about others. I mean, it comes back to the second command. You know, you've got to love your God, love others as you love yourself. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about others? Now, at first blush, today's gospel seems to focus on humility. Jesus uses that word. He says, don't grab at the best seats at the table as if you're grabbing at glory itself. Instead, settle for the worst seats so that instead of being shamed in front of everyone when you're asked to move, you will be exalted. Now, I know Jesus said it, but I still have problems with this. Because as Frederick Buechner defines humility, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself in the same way you think of others. And what Jesus seems to be presenting here is less about humility and more about an alternative way to gain glory, to be exalted in front of your friends, as if true glory can actually be gained. He's offering this more subtle way to trick those around you into thinking highly of you instead of looking at you distastefully. So what bothers me is this idea of getting what you want through the back door rather than actually challenging the system of shame and glory at its roots, which is typically what Jesus is calling us to do. He uses the word humble, but it's not really humility at all because you're still comparing. Okay, where do I fit here? Who's more worthy? Who's less worthy? How do I go about being honored? Who will ask me to move up? I'm also bothered a bit by this description of this as a parable. You know, a parable is typically a story that starts as one expects and then ends up upside down, making the listener think and never really resolving itself. This isn't a parable, per se. It's instruction. It's instruction for the ones who are invited to the table as well as instruction for the ones doing the inviting. And only in the latter part does Jesus start to sound a little more like Jesus. Don't invite those you want on the you owe me list. Instead, invite the ones you'd rather not have at all. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the outcast, the other, the stranger. Because, and there it is again, because then you'll be repaid at the resurrection and you will be blessed. Again, there's something about this that doesn't ring right. And I wonder now, because I, I, want, I want to protect Jesus from my, my discomfort here, I wonder if maybe he was messing with the Pharisees a bit in all of this. Because once he's done with these instructions, someone from the, from the table bursts up and he starts saying, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. As if he somehow thinks, I get it. And Jesus does a reality check with them by using another parable, a real parable, the one about a dinner in which those who were originally invited were all too busy and too self-absorbed to show up. And so the servants go out into the streets and the roads, bringing anyone and everyone who would come, the unseemly and the homeless, the dirty and the helpless. And I wonder... If there wasn't a bit of unrecognized sarcasm in today's scripture, 
as Jesus is slowly letting the Pharisees in on what should really happen at the Lord's table. Because if one really lives into humility, it's never about accomplishing an ulterior motive. It's not something one can claim for oneself, because as soon as you do, the humility is gone. Oh, look how humble I was. Well, that sort of defeats the purpose. And instead, if you think of yourself in the same way that you think of others, there's no glory seat at all. There is no head of the table or bottom of society. There is no more positions of honor or shame. All are one. There is one table, and there is room enough to fit everyone because at God's table, everyone is welcome. That's what it was like at my grandma's house. That's what it's like here at our Savior's. No one is going to be turned away from the meal. When someone else comes around, when there's a bigger group to feed, you just keep adding another leaf to the table, and the table grows. Honestly, I don't know how many leaves my grandma actually had for her table, but it always seemed endless. There was always another leaf that could be added at the table. The table could always grow a bit more. And that's what I hear from Pavlovitz and Duncan, these authors. Our ideas of who belongs and how many, and for what purpose, and in what context, all of those get thrown out the window when Christ enters the room. All the questions go away, and we're only left with the bread and wine of Eucharist. The good news, Eucharist. Duncan says it beautifully. He says, The banquet that is about to be laid out by the sovereign God is a feast of equity. But make no mistake, it will be like the night this same God was arrested. God will take this church, lift it up, give thanks, and then break it. And he will turn and face us, saying to those we have oppressed, This, this is my body, broken for you. And so we... This broken body of believers are invited to a banquet we cannot repay. We are invited to a table where all seats are neither honored nor shamed, where we are fully ourselves in the presence of God. We are invited to a table that groans under the weight of God's grace. And when others come to the table, we are called then to add another leaf. When our feast partners come, we add another leaf. When our African brothers and sisters come through the door, we add another leaf. When the immigrant immigrant comes, we add another leaf. When children come with noise and wiggly bodies, we add another leaf. When the Muslim and Jewish neighbors come, we add another leaf. When the sick and the disabled come, we add another leaf. When the politicians and the government officials and ICE officials come, we add another leaf. Because the only way we will ever begin to learn and understand each other is when we sit down to a meal as sisters and brothers in Christ and begin to talk. And when people refrain from coming to us because of fear or disbelief or discomfort or misunderstanding, we take this table out to them. We step out of our fear and become Christ to our neighbors. And finally, when all are seated, the host that has invited us, Christ himself, will not be found at the head of the table or the middle of the table, as the Lord's Supper is always depicted in pictures, 
or even at the foot of the table. Christ will be found below the table, silently washing each of our feet, preparing us for the journey of faith and imparting his spirit on us so that we are ready to feed the world. Amen.